Welcome to the Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis, LA, and Dublin. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Hi. Hello, Crepe, speak with Jacqueline Novogratz. Hi, Paul, it's Jacqueline. Jacqueline, it's such a pleasure to have you on this call. Thank you so much for being part of the Quarantine Tapes, co-presented by DubLab and Onassis LA. First of all, Jacqueline, happy birthday. Well, happy birthday to you, fellow child of the eye. I know we really, we, we share the same birthday. As I was preparing to talk to you, I found out that both of us are born when Caesar was killed on the Ides of March. Beware, beware. And I thought that I would start with a poem by Mary Oliver, which she wrote a poem about turning 60, but she also wrote a poem about turning 70 and... It's called Self-Portrait, and she says, she writes in this poem, I wish I was 20 and in love with life and still full of beans. Onward, old legs, they're the long, pale dunes. On the other side, the roses are blooming and finding their labor, no adversity to the spirit. Upward, old legs, they're the roses, and there is a sea, shining like a song, like a body, I want to touch, though I'm not twenty, and won't be again, but ah, seventy, and still in love with life, and still full of beans. How does that resonate with you? I mean, I love Mary Oliver. I read her almost daily, and it fully resonates. I feel completely full of beans. In fact, I was just saying to my 25-year-old assistant, you know, Lola, the thing about getting older is that inside, you don't feel any different than you did at 25, but you look at the mirror and you think, who is that person? And it sometimes could take your breath away. And yet I feel this constant sense of renewal. And if ever there were a moment for us all to have those moments of rebirth and be young again, be almost like children again, Paul, it's now in the midst of this pandemic. Help me make the connection Hmm. between renewal and the pandemic, and perhaps a certain form of going back? Well, in listening to so many of your podcasts also, I've been struck by how many people have gone back. And it is certainly something that has been occurring to me as I've thought about times past and what they've meant and where we are and where we need to go. And I do think history has a circularity to it. And it is our job right now. To look back and remember and hold on to the most beautiful parts of the past and bring them forward and yet have the courage to let go of what no longer serves us. And as we go through these milestone birthdays, to also have the courage to both pare down what's not useful, but double down on that, I guess, those parts of you that make you full of beans. Yeah, and I, I'd like to address that also in, in the work you do. 
Um, you're, you're the founder and CEO of Acumen. And it's interesting to me to read about Acumen as I have in preparing once again to speak to you. You say rather than giving philanthropy away, we invest in companies and change makers. You speak about patient capital. And it's very interesting to me because I work for a foundation, the Onassis Foundation, which is not a philanthropic foundation. They call themselves a foundation for the public, for public benefit. I'm wondering if we might unpack perhaps the similarities in some way. I think there's a growing orientation that... Um we have to stop bifurcating the world between uh, where you make money and then where you give away money as if they were two completely different activities. The idea of acumen, and it sounds very much like the idea of your foundation, Paul, is we see investment as a means, not as an end in and of itself. For us, philanthropy should be the most risk-oriented capital that we have access to. And yet it is sadly, tragically, where we often see people taking the least amount of risk, where they play safe. And so what we do is raise philanthropic capital and we invest for 10 to 15 years, so seriously patient capital, in those intrepid entrepreneurs who go where markets and government have both failed the poor, healthcare, education, agriculture, energy. Uh, we accompany those entrepreneurs because we understand that they are building solutions to poverty where people make two, three dollars a day, have no trust, very little infrastructure, but are often surrounded by corruption and bureaucracy. And um, when we build to scale and usually only do in partnership with government and philanthropy again, the money that comes back to Acumen gets reinvested in other innovations. And so it's moving away from so many of the bifurcated and frankly I think, unproductive conversations about the means themselves and focuses first and foremost on the problems that we want to solve and then find the right kind of capital and the right kind of character um, to solve those problems. And in this time of the pandemic, has your work changed? Our work has deepened and we have pivoted. Mm. I mm. think like so many organizations, the first week of the pandemic it became very clear in many of the nations in which we operate, Pakistan, India, East, West, Africa, Latin America, where there was no PPP or big government program, that the customers, as well as the employees of our companies, were living at the brink between life and death. And that it became so critical to find ways to keep people in jobs so that they could afford food to keep their families surviving. And so... We've only historically made equity and loan investments, but it was clear that that was not going to work in this time of the pandemic. So I think I, I began to understand at a deeper level what it means to have built the community over 20 years, reached out to the privileged in our community, asked them uh, for significant grants, millions of dollars in grants, and then we we rejiggered our, our organization so that we could very quickly deploy those grants as emergency support across over 100 different companies and fellows, nonprofit organizations that we support. And Paul, it was extraordinary that in this time of being so distant, I felt I had a, 
a new way of immersing yeah. with the customers of the companies that, that we support. That's so interesting because you wrote something to me um, which I want to quote back to you and have you unpack a little bit. You say, if empathy is a catalyst to moral imagination, then immersion is its lifeblood. Help me understand that better. So, well, to start by unpacking the whole phrase of moral imagination, this idea that um, we ha we too many of us see the, the world only through the lens of our own imagination even when we're designing systems for people whose lives are completely unlike our own. And moral imagination starts in the other way. It starts by putting yourself in the shoes of, of those who are different and trying to build solutions from their perspective. That requires both the audacity to see where you want to go and the humility to realize the mess of the world around you. Um, no when kidding. I, when I talk about, right, you, that, that you can't be naive. You've got to understand what we're dealing with. And so it starts with empathy. And I hear so many corporations say, you know, we're, we have empathy. And I think, well, empathy by itself reinforces the status quo. It's too close to sympathy. It's too close to feeling sorry for. The empathy is the, is the catalyst for the moral imagination. But the next step, if you will, is immersion. The civil rights activist in the United States, Brian Stevenson, calls it proximity. For me, I love the quote from Tilly Olson where she talks about, you know, may you live a life of immersion, but to paraphrase her, but what price will you pay? Um, can you go deep? Can you sit with people, understand their realities, and then take it to the next level and understand the systems that keep those individuals where they are, as well as having the honesty to, to see where they might be holding themselves back, um, and then build the solutions. And, um, and I think this is that moment because all of our institutions seem to have run their course, we have to reimagine them. And that begins, Paul, with the, with the moral imagination, where we shift from the last 50 years, where too many of our institutions were, were defined by profit, the individual at their center, money, power, fame. Now we have to redesign, reimagine to put our shared humanity at the center, the sustainability of the earth at the center. And that won't happen just with the technicalities of imagination. It has to be grounded in the moral imagination. And one of the ways of um, sharpening that imagination might be this. Years ago, I had the opportunity of meeting Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer. And we discovered that we both have a passion for Albert Camus, and that every year he told me he rereads The Plague, which of course in this year is particularly pungent uh, um, book to read. And he said to me that when he became a Supreme Court Justice, his mother told him to never stop reading, because it was the one way in which he could put himself in the shoes of someone else. And I'm wondering how that, that comment resonates with you. You're in a very practical world, and yet I begin this conversation reading with intention, Mary Oliver, to you. And as I understand it, you are now going back to certain books that you've loved, not only going back to them, but reading Gabriel Garcia Marquez in Spanish. Well, uh, that's a stretch. I'm taking Spanish lessons, Paul. Um, and so I'm reading a chronicle of the death foretold with this extraordinary 
man named Leopoldo in Colombia, who was actually a, a friend of Gabriel Garcia Marquez's. So you can imagine my favorite hour of the week is to read many sentences that I don't understand, but have Leopoldo uh, translate and help me understand. And then that will spawn these stories. And I'm reminded in rereading Gabriel Garcia Marquez um, and, and, and many of the authors whose, whose style was magical realism, that these authors were actually writing about reality, even though when I was much younger, I thought they were fantastical, and they are. But underneath those layers are the quotidian life, the, the politics of life. And, and so the first time I read Gabriel Garcia Marquez, 100 Years of Solitude in the early 80s, I was so struck, Paul, by Rebecca, uh, who was one of the characters who ate dirt. Yes. And I thought, how did he make that up, that this woman ate dirt? And a couple of years later, I find myself working in Rwanda, starting the first microfinance bank. And we're lending to women, and, um, and many of the women were pregnant who were borrowing money. And one of my co-founders uh, said, you know, we have a real problem with the women who are pregnant because they're eating kilos of dirt. And it just stopped me in my tracks. And I said, what do you mean they're eating dirt? And she said, well, it's a, it's a, it's, it, we call it pika. And we don't really understand it, but we think it's that they're, they're just iron starved. And so they just eat dirt while they're pregnant. And I thought he was just telling us the truth of what he saw. And then I find through Leopoldo that in, indeed all of the characters were named. They were his family and the people that he knew in the villages where he grew. And so now we do work in those same areas of Colombia. And it's given me a, a much deeper understanding through literature of the societies in which we operate. And, and also, Paul, in this time of interdependence where we, on one level, all technically can have access to one another, um, too often we, we lack the humility to, to see each other or, or go to new places as guests. And as a guest, to go with that, that sense of curiosity to learn about a place through the words, the language, the dreams, the thoughts of the, the people of that place. And I think that's another great gift that literature can give you is not only your own deeper understanding, but a, almost an entryway, if you will, into conversation to show from the very start, your level of curiosity about a people, a place, and your level of, of respect for the storytellers of that place. So you think um, Raya's mother had a point? Oh, <laughs> in fact, so much so that, um, you know, one of the things that Acumen does is, uh, in addition to invest, is we have a, a leadership academy, mm -hmm. Acumen Academy. And in the academy, and I don't know if I've ever mentioned this to you, Paul, we have our fellows who are wildly diverse across race, class, ethnicity, tribe, nation. We have them read a whole sort of literature, philosophy from, from Plato and, and uh, Hobbes and Rousseau, the Western, to even Haldun, the Tunisian mathematician, to Chino Achebe and Mandela and Havel. And we use that the storytelling and the poetry and the, the speeches and the philosophy as, as springboards, if you will, into conversations about the trade-offs that we make, whether we're building a company or an organization or solving a problem of poverty. Um, 
because it's naive to think that you will not be operating except in a place that has to navigate between values, holding values in tension, between efficiency and equality, between the freedom of the individual and the, and the dignity of the whole community. And so how are you going to make those trade-offs? The more that you read in a disciplined way through other people's stories, the more you have access into your own stories and hopefully a greater understanding of the why you make your own decisions. When um, Werner Herzog, the German filmmaker, is asked um, what students studying and making movies should do, he has one answer. Read, read, read. Mm. Sounds like you're close to that. And in a sense, this moment of, it's a subject we've spoken about a lot in the quarantine tapes, of slowing down has afforded that moment not that you're not working very, very hard, but that moment of to take you back again to going back, to going back not only to Marquez, but to going back to writers that mattered to you earlier on and that perhaps you wanted to read, but you couldn't because you were taken by travel and by the kinds of occupations and preoccupations that our life used to have and probably will have again. And I imagine that... Many people are worried that we're going to go back to the busyness we had before. Yeah. You know, what I would, what I would add, though, in addition to read, particularly if you're looking to solve complex problems, especially of poverty, of people who've been left out of the systems, is listen, 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 listen. <laughs> and um, No argument from me. <laughs> And so you're absolutely right. I think that, that for me, as you said, I've, been, I've never worked harder than I can remember in my life, but I've also never slept less. And so part of the reading is waking up at three, four in the morning and just diving in, not only to literature, Paul, and fiction, but this is a time of that, the moral imagination of reimagining. And so also I think about so many economists and often women like Mariana Mazzucata and Rebecca Henderson who are reimagining systems. And scholars, you know, the central banker, Mark Carney, was so exciting. I was listening to his podcast, the Reich podcast, I believe, from the UK. And he started this great central banker, investment banker, trying to reimagine capitalism. And he started with the tale about the gift of the Magi. And then, and you know, quoting Adam Smith, but his moral sentiments, not just his theories of the invisible hand. I think that there is a recognition we all have that it is time to move from counting just what we can measure to measuring what we can't count, to valuing what we can't count, rather. And, and so I do think it's that, that imagination, again, through art, through literature, through film, that in, when, in many ways is, a, is that invitation to thinking about the world that we want to inhabit, as well as so many of the authors that I'm so drawn to. Um, Such as? Oh, in <sighs> India, Rohitin mystery and a fine balance. You know, it, it is Dickensian in taking you through generation of, of just the most abject poverty, but not in a way that makes you feel sorry for people, that, that immerses you in the lives of people who 
for too many of us are, are just invisible. And suddenly they like Dickens. They're, they're alive in there. They're just like us, uh, whoever us is. And you're rereading and so, Invisible Man also. The Invisible Man, Ralph Ellison. And, and I remember being 22 and, and reading it for the first time and, and making a, a, a commitment to myself that I wouldn't walk by a homeless man without saying hello or woman, without recognizing them. And it's funny, yesterday I was actually walking down the street of New York and I was in a hurry. I just got my vaccine and a homeless man said, you know, would you give me something to eat? And part of me wanted to keep walking, it's freezing. And I said, sure. I was with my husband. I said, sure. We stopped at a coffee stand and um, he picked out his cup of coffee and he picked out his donut and we, we exchanged a few words. And Paul, it was so easy. Just that moment of humanity. And just as Ellison reminds us, know who gained out of that interaction right and uh, like brian stevenson reminds us a notion of being as you said earlier proximate so important and so easy not to do i always remember that wonderful poem uh, of baudelaire the eyes of the poor and looking away looking away and and one of the things that is remarkable is that we can look towards beauty but we also have to be careful not to shy away from everything that is ugly and to find strengths in it. And I'm thinking about that extraordinary poem of Brecht, which I want you to react to, which where he says, what kind of times are these when to talk about trees is almost a crime because it implies silence about so many horrors? And, and my response is, it, it doesn't necessarily imply that. And I'm wondering how that resonates with you, Jacqueline. Uh, I don't think it implies that I, at all. In fact, I, I, I think we, it's exactly what you said, Paul, we have to see the beauty in each other. And in fact, what I've learned that I was so not, not prepared, I was prepared, but I was, I guess, one of the great joys and surprises of my life in doing this work which is now 35 years of working in low-income communities all around the world, is that, as you said, this work of change, this work of struggle is hard. And it can be you know, many lifetimes of work to create real generational change. But at every step of the way, there's beauty to be found. And indeed, it's in, often in the most difficult places, the meanest places. Give me an example. Give me an example. Because you actually I can have, give you a million examples. Just give me one really good one. Oh. Oh. Um, so in the Tar Desert, in the southern deserts of Pakistan, where people are extremely poor, where the sun is, is brutally hot, they'll be driving along. And I was with a, a man named Dr. Sono, we were looking at drip irrigation that we had invested with him, and the camels were you know, hiding from the side. Everybody was hiding from the side, and I was looking around, and I, and I said, Dr. Sono, it's so hot, and this is, I feel like I'm on the moon. And he said, oh, but, but this is springtime. You're not looking hard enough for the color. And, uh, and so I started looking hard at these withering trees, and then suddenly, Paul, we came upon this huge field of sunflowers in the desert where all this drip irrigation was going on. And then we jumped out of the car full of just jubilation and four women walked up and they were dressed in the, the clothes of the, the tar desert, fuchsias and lime greens and bright oranges. And they had 
white bangles up all their arms. And one of them had four pots, one atop each other, each pot fully decorated. And I think we as human beings urge toward beauty to remind us of life, that we're here to live, that we're here for dignity. And my house is full of things made by hand for daily use, where people have created beauty, I think as a way to remind us of of our possibility and our, our, our potential as human beings. So to say that to speak of trees is to deny, you know, in a funny way, for me connects to the arrogance of both too many elites and too often the poverty industry. And I do believe it's an industry mm. that feels that we have to take care of these people, that when we give them things, it doesn't matter if these things are beautiful because they're good for them. Uh, we speak in shoulds about low-income people. They should do this. They should do that. These people are. And the truth is, if you want to sell uh, a solar light, for instance, to a low-income family, and you care about who that family is, then you will not only make it affordable, but you will make it something they are proud of to show their neighbors. And if you ask them and you dare to listen to them, they will tell you. And it is by applying that level of moral imagination combined with the, the practical application of engineering knowledge and marketing knowledge that allows companies like D-Light, one of our companies, uh, to start at zero when there were no solar appliances available to low-income people anywhere in the world and a billion and a half people relied on dirty kerosene, grow to, to serve 100 million low-income people. It was that infusing humanity and morality into the tools of markets. And what we have done over the last 50 years is the opposite. We have, we have used the markets to dominate everything in our society. About, about giving the solar lights, I was reminded of the work that Olafur Eliasson has done in, in that regard, yes. which is so interesting in, in, in my view. We, you know, I imagine the, the beautiful objects you have at home where you can still the, see the imprint of the hand, you probably are experiencing them much more now that you're traveling so much less. Yes. Well, and just say, if literature helped me see the world in technicolor, Paul, long before I ever was able to travel, um, as you said, these artifacts, these, these, what I, I used to arrogantly uh, think of as crafts, I now understand in many cases are art. And there's a beautiful poem by Galeanos, the Uruguayan poet called The Nobodies. And in it, he speaks of essentially the wealthy have artists and the poor have artisans. The, the wealthy have language and the poor have dialects. And so being surrounded by beauty that has been created by people I've known, I've worked with, I've immersed myself with, is indeed that. It helps my own imagination soar in this time of, uh, of so much loss and so much sadness for so many people. You know, we started with Mary Oliver, and I, I feel like ending with her. Um, she, she quotes in an epigraph um, of Vincent van Gogh, so it's van Gogh actually speaking here in her beautiful book called Red Bird, and Van Gogh writes, but I always think that the best way to know God 
is to love many things. I love that. Mary Oliver says, um, you know, the act of paying attention is a form of prayer. And I do think that that is the journey for all of us in many ways, Paul, that the pandemic for all of the suffering and all of the, the breaking open and the exposing of the ugly underbelly of our broken systems has also given us all the opportunity to pay more attention, uh, to love the small in our lives, to, to walk around the room and experience the whole universe. And that goes back to where you started um, with, uh, and what Stephen Breyer's mom talked about, read, 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 that we, we don't always have to leave physically to be transported to other places, other cultures, to gain that understanding, to connect, to demonstrate our love and our respect, um, because we're all that we have. And in this time of our birthdays, as as the horizon of time seems to be narrowing in the most beautiful ways. I do. I feel that, you know, can we, can we stay in the present, but imagine a hundred years from now, what will people say about our generation that we tried or that we were blind. And uh, I just hope to God that they see that at least we tried. Jacqueline, it's been a real pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much for making this time. And I hope in such a time when we can, we will see each other in person. You are one of the, the true greats. And um, you're expansive and erudite and capacious mind and heart uh, have, have really helped me and so many others in this pandemic, Paul. And so keep going. And thank you. It's just, a, it's just a true honor to talk to you. Thank you so much, Jacqueline. Take care. You take good care. Bye-bye. Bye. To support this show and Dublab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com slash support. 